Let Me Tell You a Story, Podcast 28. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. Never mind. It is a true universally acknowledged. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. To start things off, Steve has a blonde joke for you. By the way, I'm blind. I mean, I'm blonde. (laughs) After this, who knows? (laughs) An old blind cowboy wanders into an all-girl biker bar by mistake. He finds his way to a bar stool and orders a shot of Jack Daniels. After sitting there for a while, he yells to the bartender, Hey, you want to hear a blonde joke? The bar immediately falls absolutely silent. In a very deep, husky voice, the woman next to him says, Before you tell that joke, cowboy, I think it's only fair, given that you are blind, that you should know five things. The bartender is a blonde girl with a baseball bat. The bouncer is a blonde girl with a billy club. I'm a six-foot-tall, 175-pound blonde woman with a black belt in karate. The woman sitting next to me is blonde and a professional weightlifter. The lady to your right is blonde and a professional wrestler. Now, think about it seriously, cowboy. Do you still want to tell that blonde joke? The blind cowboy thinks for a second, shakes his head, and mutters, No, not if I'm going to have to explain it five times. (laughs) So to balance that, here's a poem by Jean Shea, Eugene Shea, out of Hannah, Wyoming. It's called The Genie and the Wise Men. Three men found a genie in a bottle, pulled the cork, and set him free. In gratitude for services rendered, he granted a wish to all three. The first guy thought it over a bit. Make me ten times as smart as I am. Genie snapped his finger and poof! He knew that all pork was not ham. The second man thought that was great. He has to be a hundred times smarter. The genie turned him into a Democrat, and he campaigned for Jimmy Carter. The third man thought, go for broke. It's a thousand times smarter for me. Then the genie turned him into a woman, for that's about as smart as you can be. <laughs> that was great. Um, our friend Pam McClary, a woman, by the way, and a blonde, whose stories we read from time to time, wrote one she calls Happy Birthday to Me. Growing up in a small 1950s Midwest town gave my brothers and me many opportunities to play make-believe. We played monsters. My little brother was always the alligator. We played Superman, with capes fashioned from towels pinned around our necks. And we played cowboys and Indians, with cap guns and suction-tipped arrows. 
sandwiched between two of the most precocious brothers a girl could ever have. I was nearly three years old when we moved to our trailer on Oak Hill Road. One brother was a year younger and the other a year older. What one didn't think of, the other did, even as young as we were. It was almost my birthday. We anxiously awaited the party that was soon to come. Mom had already purchased napkins, candles, and the hard pink sugar decorations to go on top of the cake. As children were wont to do, we often got into things not meant for us. We knew very well that one of those off-limit items was the box of matches on the shelf above the stove. Mother used the matches to light the oven, so we knew exactly where they were and what they would do. While she was busy in the other room, Stevie, my older brother, decided he wanted to get a head start on my birthday party. Being the big brother, he called the shots. That was just understood. Since we could not celebrate without a cake, he climbed up on a chair and found the candles and matches. I was to be the birthday cake. I sat down on the chair while Stevie opened the box of pastel candles, tied them in my hair, lit them, and began to sing, Happy birthday to you, happy birthday. Whether it was a song or the smell of burning hair that brought my mom rushing into the kitchen, I'm not sure. And I don't recall just how she put out the candles. But I am reasonably sure she did not make a wish and blow them out. Somehow I survived my lively childhood, but I do shiver a bit when it's my turn to make a wish. And here's a poem by Pam titled Perfect. I am amazed when I think of the power of electricity. By the simple flip of a switch, a dark room is illuminated, lighting my way. But when I look into the night sky, I am truly in awe. No outlets, switches, or cords. Perfect illumination. The telephone has always held a fascination for me. In a split second, my very own words are transmitted thousands of miles to those I love. But when I talk to God, before I even utter my words, He knows what I will say. He hears what's in my heart. Perfect communication. The computer, too, is a source of wonder. Any needed information is at my fingertips in a matter of seconds. But that can't compare to the Word of God, which has already answered every question I could have about life. Perfect Word. Perfect God. I'm going to go back to poetry by Eugene Shea. This one ro- uh, won the Rosa Zagnoni Marinoni Award. Oh, I say that ten times fast. Anyway, it's called Easy Street. Oh, I have a little house of my own where I live by myself, all alone. Away from the clamors of modern day life. Away from the cares of an ambitious wife. Just one old dog and sometimes a cat. Books to read and pictures to look at. A fire on the hearth and soup in the pot. My bed's unmade, as likely as not. When the wind blows and chills are about, an old wool sweater with the elbow out. Old flop hat with a hole in the crown. A coal oil lamp when night comes down. I need little money, for I have no bills. A nip of the grape to chase away the chills. A little home brew with a creamy white head. Six bits in my jeans for a loaf of bread. 
I don't need butter and I don't need meat, just a warm, dry nest for a place to sleep. Oranges are a-hanging on my trees outside, but it's work to pick them, and I have my pride. But each day I write a little poem or two, then have a little tasty when the job is through. Now my work ain't hard, but bless my soul, it's a whole two blocks to my fishing hole. If the fish ain't biting, I have to make do on fish bait salad and crawdad stew. A fellow was a-telling me just the other day that I ought to get a job and make big pay. I ain't getting rich, but I'm still way ahead. My wife and the IRS both think I'm dead. All right. So, <laughs> now two sides of Gene Peterson. I'm going to read two things by Gene Peterson, who is a Boise, Idaho writer. And um, they, are, they are certainly different um, styles. This one is called Blood on the Blade. The warrior stands on the battleground and blood runs down his blade. He stares in sudden unbelief as though within a dream. What moments hence was chaos, was clash of steel on steel, was battle cry and cry of pain, now is deathly still. In carnage, clamor, rage, and fear. In desperate clash collide the brave of home and far away. Now only one survives. Out of breath and weak of leg, he staggers round the scene. He wonders why he came this day to walk among the dead, and why so many gave their lives while others are home in bed. For king or state or freedom's sake, each man will give it all. But who will claim the prize this day as the last man begins to fall? To dust returns the blood of life, and silence overtakes. Only carrion come to claim the land as blood runs down his blade. All right, contrast that with this one, which is humor. And I think somewhat, uh, I think this may have happened or close to it. This is called Chucker and Other Evil Creatures, Gene Peterson. Chucker hunting is preparation for elk season. It must be, because I can't think of another good reason to participate in such madness. If you've never hunted this wily and sadistic little bird, then good for you. It speaks highly of your judgment. To begin with, they don't hang out in civilized terrain like their eastern cousin, the pheasant. No? The little criminals pick the steepest, rockiest country they can find and then sit on a ridge and dare you to come up and get them. It usually goes like this. Wait, did you hear that? Heck yeah, I heard it. Those are chuckers and they're right up there. So we take off like a couple scalded dogs headed for the high country. Nearing the ridge top, our lungs are on fire and our legs have turned to pudding. All the while, this pack of Himalayan escapees are chuckling away. And do you know why? Because they have a lookout posted on a rock in plain view of the nearly expired, but hopeful, hunters. At the last possible second, so as not to miss the disappointed look on our faces, he gives the signal, and they all explode into flight and glide over to the next ridge. It wouldn't be so bad if it weren't for the laughter and the insults hurled over their shoulders as they drift away. Evil, unsportsmanlike creatures. In Idaho, 
you can find a lot of chuckers in Hell's Canyon. Now, isn't that appropriate? There they can not only escape to the next impossibly steep ridge, but they can also cross the river into Oregon. Okay, here's what we'll do. I saw where they landed. We'll go down to the river and bum a ride across from one of those fishermen. Then we'll bum a ride to Halfway, Oregon and buy hunting licenses. Then we'll bum a ride back and go after the little boogers. What? You're going to wait here while I chase them back over to this side? Hmm. Evil. Unsportsmanlike. We have chuckers in other inhospitable country, too. Which reminds me of the time that my brother Glenn and I were out in in the Owyhees in our buddy Dave's pickup. Being the considerate guys that we are, we even let Dave come along to drive. In Owyhee County, there are about six paved roads. The rest are gravel, dirt, dusty dirt, or grease if it rains. Dave was driving a dirt road toward our yet-to-be-determined chucker hunting spot. As he crossed the cattle guard, we pointed him toward a ridge road right to uh, to our right. Dave craned his neck for a view of the top. No way, he says. That ain't a road. That's a rock slide waiting for a trigger. I ain't doing it. Dave's pretty easy. Only after a short stream of references to his lack of courage and manhood, he conceded and charged up the hill, muttering some nonsense like, My wife's going to kill me if I wreck this pickup. Glenn and I cheered him on with all the gusto given to those without a firm grip on reality, right up to the point where all four tires started to lose traction and we began to slide sideways toward our almost certain demise. That's a fancy way of saying that things didn't look so good for our future. A moment later, the tires caught on the unseen edge of nothing. Humility is such a waste at times such as these. It would have been so much more useful down there on flat ground where it was so pleasant and safe and horizontal. Beads of sweat began to pop out on Dave's forehead. I cleared my throat just to break the silence. With a nervous chuckle, Glenn says, I told you not to do it, Dave. A disturbing, deep, guttural growl emanated from Dave's side of the cab. Looking at Glenn, I said, Mmm, that's disturbing. While looking out the window and straight down into the abyss, Glenn nodded his head and said, Yes, yes it is. I have to say that driving up as far as he did was impressive, but coming back down backwards, now, that was memorable. When we got back on flat ground, we all got out, and Dave reached for his shotgun. I didn't care for the look in his eye. I liked that full-body twitch even less. Then he uttered those fateful words. Did you hear that? Those are chuckers, and they're right up there. I love those little birds. We've been reading from uh, my first novel, Winds of Wyoming, and we're in Chapter 4, which picks up with the hero, Mike Duncan, just after he discovered the fence that surrounds his bison pasture was cut. Mike trudged up the hill to the solar unit that provided the electric current for the fence. Just as he'd anticipated, the line from the box to the fence had also been cut. He looked around. 
half expecting to see someone watching him from behind a tree. But who? His dad's only enemies were the Clifford brothers, two harmless old men, who thought they ran all the area ranches. They did dumb stuff like stop by hayfields to tell people they watered too much or too little, or mowed too early or too late, or didn't let the cut grass dry long enough or rotate their fields often enough. All the while, their own place went to pot. He lifted his hat to scratch his head. His dad had never thought much of those two. But his dad was gone, and Mike didn't have any enemies that he knew of. He kicked a stump, which didn't do much to ease his frustration, and plodded back down the hill. To his relief, no bison nosed around the pickup, which was a surprise. Bison were curious animals. He tugged at the dented lid on the attached toolbox. If he could reach his tools, he could use the lumber that had fallen from the truck bed to repair the fence. The vehicle wobbled, but the lid didn't budge. He released an exasperated huff. That would have been too easy. On to plan B. He picked up a two-by-four and bent the fence strands around it, the barb stabbing his gloveless fingers. He did the same with the second board and the other strands of loose wire. When he finished the makeshift sections, he leaned the boards against the pickup. Bison vision wasn't as good as their hearing or their sense of smell, but they'd eventually notice the truck and check it out. With any luck, they wouldn't knock over the fake fence. He heard his mom's voice and looked in the cab window. The CB handset dangled from the dashboard. Asked why you weren't at church. They missed you and your guitar. A moment later, Mike, are you there? He couldn't reach the CB, and he'd already tried the two-way. He pulled the cracked, water-soaked radio from his belt, tossed it in the passenger window that now faced the sky, and picked up a rock. He hurled it as hard as he could against the nearest tree trunk then motioned to his dog resting in the shade of the vehicle. Come on, Tramp. We've got a long uphill hike ahead of us. Kate crammed the gear shift in a second. The Honda's ascent up Battle Mountain had slowed to a chug. A perfect metaphor for her life, dragging herself up yet another incline, trying to do better, always trying to do better. She climbed endless mountains, only to careen back down when the newest foster family was as uncaring as the previous ones, when the latest boyfriend was even more abusive than the others, when she'd fallen for a pimp's lies and prostituted her body, when she'd allowed Jerry Ramsey to ruin her prison rehabilitation. The road leveled out and the car gained speed. She tightened her grip on the steering wheel, hearing his ugly snicker when he fondled her body during bed check. Never forget, baby. This belongs to me. She groaned, sickened by his arrogance and the smell of sweat fused with brute aftershave that surfaced unbidden. She felt again the blows that knocked her to the ground the day she ended the affair. She heard her ribs crack as he kicked her into unconsciousness. But her crossroad came into view. She stomped the brake pedal and spun the steering wheel to the right. The car fishtailed, but she gained enough control to slide behind a stand of trees, open the car door, and vomit. Though she hadn't eaten since the night before, she couldn't stop throwing up, nor could she quit sobbing. The nausea finally subsided. Exhausted, she cut the engine and leaned her head against the headrest. After a moment, she opened the glove box to find a tissue and blow her nose. She swished water around her mouth to rinse away the acrid taste before spitting it at an exposed tree trunk. If only she could wash Ramsay out of her life. She flipped the visor mirror down, The sight of her swollen eyelids made her grimace, not exactly how she'd expected to look when she started a new job. 
Using the edge of the tissue and lotion, she removed mascara smears before reaching for her cell phone. She didn't dare call out Mary, but Amy would understand. She looked at the screen. No service. Turned the phone off and dropped it into her purse. What would she have said, anyway? Amy, you'll never believe who I ran into today. Or, remember Ramsey, that psycho officer in prison? Or, hey, do you remember the correctional officer who got me pregnant? She fell against the steering wheel, weeping again. She'd once thought she'd forgotten how to cry. Now she couldn't stop. God, I need help. Ramsey wouldn't leave me alone at Patterson, and he won't leave me alone here. I hate to say it, but I'll kill him before I let him hurt me or rape me again. She rocked her forehead back and forth on the hard surface. I know that's a horrible thing to say, and Chaplain Sam would be upset with me. She squeezed her eyelids closed, remembering the kindly prison chaplain's parting words. Live in the light, Kate. Bury the past and live in the light. He'd written scriptures about light on her going-away card. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Live as children of light. Declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. She started the engine. Okay, God, I'll bury the dark again, but you have to lead me to the light. It seems so far away. Mike limped into the barn. Rusty, one of the ranch hands, was shoeing a horse in the first stall, his back to the mare's rump. Her tail flicked across his shoulders as he bent over her hoof, wedged between his knees. Mike wiped his forehead with his shirt sleeve. Where's Cyrus? I need to find him. Fast. Rusty dropped his hammer and spit horseshoe nails from the corner of his mouth into his palm. Been swimming in a mud hole, boss? Tramp sat next to the farrier, an expectant look in his eyes. Rusty stroked the dog's head. Mike grunted. Something like that. You know where Cyrus is? Tramp licked Rusty's cheek. Gee, thanks, Tramp. Rusty looked at Mike. Last I saw Cyrus, he was headed over to the office to talk to your mom. Oh, great. Mike slammed his hat against the barn door. Dried mud dribbled off the rim and a small dust cloud rose above it. He sneezed and was about to leave when he felt Rusty stare. Uh, I didn't mean that the way it sounded. He put his hat back on. It's just that I've got a situation to talk to Cyrus about that might worry my mom. Anything I can do to help? Maybe. I'll let you know. Favoring his bruised leg, Mike left the barn and took off toward the log home he shared with his mother. The front section of the building housed the lobby and office, the back their living quarters. If he snuck in the back door, he could clean up before he went looking for Cyrus. Mike crammed his hands into his pockets. His mom would be upset that he'd ruined his dad's pickup. She'd been so sad since he died, but he could get the truck fixed without her knowing what happened and pay for the repairs out of his account instead of using ranch funds. Cyrus would help him fix the fence. They had plenty of wire on hand, and the crazy morning would become a non-event, if the herd stayed put. Maybe next time he'd handle things better. Tramp crawled up the redwood steps of the deck to his water bowl. Mike slipped inside the screen door and blocked it with his heel to keep it from slamming shut. After it had quietly closed, he tiptoed across the dining room. Hey, buddy, what's up? Mike jumped and turned around. Cyrus, you old coot, you scare me. Cyrus Moore's craggy face peered at him from the other end of the dining room table. 
No wonder, the way you slithered in here, slick as a galdern sidewinder. Where's Mom? Mrs. D, Laura, your mom? Cyrus scowled, wrinkles puckering his mouth. Dad blast it, you know who I mean. She went to grab something in the office. She'll be back pronto. Mike glanced toward the hallway that linked the public and private parts of the building. That a problem? It's just that. The door opened and his mom walked in holding a file folder. Mike, what happened? You're covered with dirt. He looked at his jeans and boots. Sorry about the mess. Should have taken off my boots. I'll sweep the floor after I change. Laura's brow furrowed. But what happened? You didn't answer either radio, you weren't in church, and you've been gone for hours. I've been worried. Just fell in the mud puddle, that's all. He moved toward the kitchen. You're limping. He lifted a hand. Gotta get some water. Swallowing all that mud made me thirsty. After a long drink of the cold well water, he leaned back against the counter and tried to sound casual. Sorry to interrupt your meeting. I'll get out of your way and go find some clean clothes. He put the glass down. When you're done, Cyrus, I need your opinion on a couple things down at the barn. Laura folded her arms around the file. I get the feeling you're hiding something, Michael. Are you injured? I'm fine. I just need to talk to Cyrus about some stuff. I don't buy it. You're coated with mud. You're limping. And your voice sounds the way it did when you called home after you broke your collarbone at that rodeo in Montana. Mike sighed. His mom was a bulldog. Once she locked on, she didn't let go. Okay. If you have to know, I wrecked old Blue. She dropped the file on the table. We should get you to a doctor now. I'm fine, Mom, really. He spread his arms. I'm breathing, walking, talking. I wasn't in the truck when it crashed, or when it got crashed into. He saw the looks on their faces and dropped his hands. I know, it doesn't make sense. Laura stepped closer to wrap her arms around his ribs. I'm so glad you weren't hurt. He returned the embrace, though he wished she hadn't hugged him in front of Cyrus. She released him and brushed the dust from her blouse. You two go find a chair on the deck. I'll bring out something to drink, and you can tell us all about it. So that was Chapter 4. And we'll uh, move on to Chapter 5 next podcast. I'm going to read now from my Aunt Hazel Thompson's uh, little short booklet that she titled The Story of Ralph and Mary Carey, and they were my grandparents. We've read a little bit about from this book in previous podcasts. Helen Elizabeth was born to Ralph and Mary on January 1st, 1915. A neighbor lady who lived about two miles away assisted in the delivery. How proud they were of their first daughter. She had dark hair and dark brown eyes. When Helen was 12 days old, a terrible wind storm came roaring through the area. Mary had just picked Helen up to hold her when the wind lifted the roof off the sod house, letting fall a huge pile of dirt on the bed before it settled back down again. Mary's father was visiting at the time and helped Ralph with temporary repairs. They carried rocks in a wash tub and piled them on the roof. It took seven tubs full before they felt it was secure. Snakes were a real worry. One summer evening, the boys were playing, crawling on hands and knees around the house, down the slanting doorway and out and around again. Later, Mary found a dead snake by the path the boys had used for their game. They never knew what or who could have killed it. We can surely say that God watched over them on that homestead, so far from medical help. 
Not one of the family members were ever bitten, although snakes were so plentiful and Mary was so very afraid of them. Ralph broke the land with horses and a walking plow. He planted beans and corn with a hand planter. After the crops were in, Ralph took jobs with other farmers on irrigated land close to Wheatland. This was necessary and the only way to get enough funds together to live another year. This way, too, he could be home with a family during the winter. He went to and from work on horseback and would, would return home each Saturday evening with groceries in a gunny sack tied to the saddle. These provisions had to last the week until he could come home again. On Sunday, Ralph would haul a barrel of water from the neighbors. He used a team and a homemade sled-like device he had made. This barrel of water had to last a week for cooking, cleaning, drinking, and washing and bathing. Sometimes the neighbors charged five cents for the water. Ralph would leave on Sunday afternoon to ride the 15 miles back to Wheatland to be ready for work the next day. Then another lonely week would begin for Mary. How afraid she was, how long it seemed until the next Saturday night when Ralph came home again. And how he worried about leaving them. How anxious he was until Saturday came and he could go home for a few hours to see if all was well. We'll read more from uh, their story another time. We're going to finish with this blog from Richard Matheson. It's today's word. Kind word. Our minds are continually whirling, spinning with all we must do today, working on conversations already completed, thinking about the future of today, of tomorrow, and for this year. It's easy to get anxious, to be paralyzed by thoughts of what-ifs and if-this, then that. Scenarios are run, crises are envisioned, and outcomes are still uncertain. It's not only you who experiences this, but everyone around you. So what can relieve the anxious person? What can help share life with others? A kind word. One spoken in love and with confidence can change a day. You know how it feels when out of the blue you get a kind note from a friend. The sun breaks through the clouds, the rain stops for a moment, and there is a peace that arrives in the heart. Solomon knew this even in his day about a thousand years before Jesus came to earth. Things were slower then, but still anxious thoughts plagued hearts. He said, An anxious heart weighs a man down, but a kind word cheers him up. Proverbs 12.25 Today, tomorrow, and from now on, be one who cheers up others by kind words. Be the one who puts perspective into a situation sees the bigger picture. Be the one who sees promise in a person and hope in the day. Be a kind word giver. And I'm going to sign off. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon best-selling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.